On the 10th of May 1933, a bonfire was held on Unter den Linden, Berlin's most important thoroughfare, close to the Berlin State Library. It was a site of great symbolic resonance. Opposite the university and adjacent to St. Hedwig's Cathedral, the Berlin State Opera House, the Royal Palace, and Karl Friedrich Schinkel's beautiful war memorial. Watched by a cheering crowd of almost 40,000, a group of students ceremonially marched up to the bonfire, carrying the bust of a Jewish intellectual, Magnus Hirschfeld, founder of the groundbreaking Institute of Sexual Sciences. Chanting the Führerspruch, a series of fire incantations, they threw the bust on top of thousands of volumes from the Institute's library, which had joined books by Jewish and other un-German writers, gays and communists prominent among them, that had been seized from bookshops and libraries. Around the fire stood rows of young men in Nazi uniforms, giving the Heil Hitler salute. The students were keen to curry favour with the new government, and this book burning was a carefully planned publicity stunt. In Berlin, Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's new Minister of Propaganda, gave a rousing speech that was widely reported around the world. No to decadence and moral corruption. Yes to decency and morality in family and state. The future German man will not just be a man of books, but a man of character. It is to this end that we want to educate you. You do well to commit to the flames the evil spirit of the past. This is a strong, great and symbolic deed, he shouted. Similar scenes went on in 90 other locations across the country that night. Although many libraries and archives in Germany were left untouched, the bonfires were a clear warning sign of the attack on knowledge about to be unleashed by the Nazi regime. The regime would move this act of destruction from the merely theatrical to the industrial scale. But the staged book burnings pro provoked a response among those who saw the need to defend the freedom of expression. In fact, two new libraries were formed as a counterblast. A year later, on the 10th of May 1934, the Deutsche Freiheitsbibliothek, the German Freedom Library, also known as the German Library of Burned Books, was opened in Paris. The German Freedom Library was founded by German Jewish writer Alfred Kantorowicz, with support from other writers and intellectuals such as André Gide, Bertrand Russell, and Heinrich Mann, the brother of Thomas Mann, and rapidly collected over 20,000 volumes, not just the books which had been targeted for burning in Germany, but also copies of key Nazi texts in order to help understand the emerging regime. H.G. Wells was happy to have his name associated with the new library, which became a focus for German emigre intellectuals and organised readings, lectures and exhibitions, much to the disgust of the German newspapers. Following the fall of Paris in 1940, the library was broken up, with many of the volumes joining the collections of the Bibliothèque Nationale. The Brooklyn Jewish Center in New York established an American library of Nazi-banned books in December 1934, with noted intellectuals on its advisory board, including Albert Einstein and Upton Sinclair. The library was proclaimed as a means of preserving and promoting Jewish culture at a time of renewed oppression. The 10th of May 1933 book burning was merely the forerunner of arguably the most concerted and well-resourced eradication of books in history through almost two decades of attacks on knowledge in libraries and archives, both private and institutional. These attacks on knowledge were a cultural and intellectual genocide that prefigured the human genocide that would soon follow.
The Nazis, however, have not been alone over the past century or more among anti-democratic regimes in targeting knowledge, either through misinformation, destruction, or theft. One of the particular triggers for me writing the book was, of course, back in January 2017, the inauguration of President Trump and the allegations that were made by Kellyanne Conway, his press secretary, that, against the facts that he had fewer people attend his inauguration, inauguration than had attended President Obama's, that, in fact, more, more people had come to his. And the, the evidence pointed in the other direction were, was, of course, alternate facts. The particular trigger that caused me to write the book was the destruction of the landing records of the Windrush generation by the Home Office in 2010, at the same time that the same government department, the Home Office, were instigating their hostile environment against our fellow citizens, at least 80 of whom were unlawfully deported based on the fact that they lacked the evidence to prove their right to remain. Whereas, in fact, the Home Office all this time had not only the possession of the landing cards that proved their right to remain, but actually chose to destroy them. This seemed to me a classic example of the social importance of the preservation of knowledge. There was truth and there was untruth, and if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you were not mad, wrote George Orwell in 1984. Although my book and this lecture are really concerned with the social importance of the preservation of knowledge, I think of libraries and archives as institutions that help society to cling to the truth. So with that backdrop, what I would like to take us on is a short journey back through history to look at what lessons we can learn from previous historic acts uh, attacks on knowledge and what it tells us about the importance of the preservation of knowledge and the institutions, libraries and archives that society has entrusted that role to. I was fortunate enough in going to visit the British Museum's wonderful exhibition I Am Ashurbanipal back in 2018 and was really struck that at the heart of this exhibition was a library but one unlike any that I had seen in my 30 years as a librarian. I hadn't previously encountered the rich and interesting history of how knowledge was preserved, organized, and accessed in libraries and archives in the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia before. So it was a revelation for me at the time. And I was absolutely delighted to find that the Bodleian Sister Institution in Oxford, the Ashmolean Museum, has fabulous holdings of these clay tablets written in Ancient, uh, ancient writing systems uh, such as cuneiform. Here are a few which Paul Collins, my colleague, the curator of uh, uh, early uh, Eastern art in the Ashmolean Museum, kindly looked out for me to consult. I don't know if many of you saw that exhibition in the British Museum, but the library at its heart was astonishing. The curators make the claim that Ashurbanipal's library was the earliest that we know of to attempted to um, uh, encompass the whole of human knowledge as it was understood at the time. It's quite astonishing in a museum exhibition to see a library of stone tablets. 
And looking, um, looking at them in more detail and reading them up after the exhibition and talking to my colleagues, it became clear that they were not only vital parts of society, going back five millennia into the first uh, settled civilizations in, in Mesopotamia, but these libraries and archives were in part formed by acts of destruction, attacks of deliberate theft and the breaking up of some of those libraries. In fact, there are accession records for Ashurbanipal's library, which have been studied by scholars working in this field to show that this great king of Assyria was deliberately targeting libraries and archives in his neighboring states, the states of his enemies, such as Babylonia. And he knew enough about those libraries and archives to send his own agents to uh, visit them and to either forcibly or through diplomacy to seize documents from these uh, other collections to build his own knowledge base in his own libraries and archives up. It's interesting that part of these collections in these uh, ancient civilizations contained texts which focused on the prediction of the future. They were astronomy, astrology, divination. And this idea is something I'd like you to hold on to because I'll come back to it at the end of my talk. The sense that the knowledge held in libraries helps you predict the future, when to plant a crop, when to go to war, when to father a child, for example. If you're able to remove knowledge from your enemy, you can not only make them weaker, but you can make yourself stronger. Our knowledge of these libraries and archives has emerged since the middle of the 19th century with a series of excavations begun by French archaeologists, uh, not that they would have called themselves that at the time, and then most importantly by a Briton, Austin Henry Layard. Here he is drawing um, in, uh, among the, the, the ruins that he was excavating at Nineveh in the centre of what is now Iraq. He did amazing excavations in the ancient cities of Nimrud and Nineveh and brought tens of thousands of tablets from the libraries and archives that he discovered there back to London, where they are now in the British Museum, about 20,000 of them. He was known as the Lion of Nineveh and was, uh, became incredibly famous at the time. But one cannot discuss attacks on knowledge in the ancient... Oh, oh and here is um, John Martin's famous um, uh, painting of the destruction, the fall of Nineveh, um, his imagination of how um, Ashurbanipal's reign came to an end. But one cannot discuss attacks on knowledge in the ancient world without making reference to the great library of Alexandria. For four millennia, it was considered the greatest library in the ancient world. And it was assumed to have been destroyed in a catastrophic conflagration. The ancient writers were in fact divided on even the basic issues about the library, including its size and the causes of its demise. All they really agreed on was that it was larger than any other library that they knew of, and that great scholars came to work there, such as Euclid, the founder of modern mathematics. Here is the oldest surviving copy of his great work, The Elements of Geometry, this copy written in the 9th century in Byzantium and is now held by the Bodleian Library in Oxford. 
But what modern scholars agree on is that the library did not go up in flames in a terrible single event, like the one depicted in this 19th century imagined engraving, but declined slowly over long periods of time, reduced to nothing through neglect and underfunding, so that by the fourth century of the Christian era, the library was completely gone, just a memory. I'd like us to do some more time travel now, further through history to one of my other case studies, which is the library of Glastonbury Abbey in the 16th century, in the, during the Protestant Reformation. And the particular figure I'd like to focus on is John Leland. Leland was an astonishing character. He doesn't feature in Hilary Mantel's great trilogy about Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, but he really ought to have done. Educated both at Cambridge and at Oxford, and then later at the University of Paris, he became steeped in humanism and very interested in investigating primary sources of the past, books and manuscripts held in libraries. Henry VIII tasked him with a most gracious commission to peruse and most diligently search all the libraries of the monasteries and colleges in the country as part of the king's so-called great matter, the search for information to help him win his case for the divorce of Catherine of Aragon and to enable him to marry the beautiful courtier Anne Boleyn, and then later to argue for the divorce of the whole country from papal authority and to establish himself as the head of the Church of England. We're fortunate in the Bodleian to have the archive of John Leland. In these papers, you can find records of his journeys to visit these libraries, his so-called itineraries. These are extraordinary documents listing the places he visited, sometimes with maps like this one um, that he drew to help him plan the journeys, drawn long before the first printed maps of England. Here, for example, you can see the Humber estuary and the houses in Lincolnshire and East Yorkshire that he visited. He then made detailed notes of the books that he saw in those libraries. Leland's archive therefore provides us with an extraordinary snapshot of the contents of these libraries on the eve of the Reformation, on the eve of their destruction. Even though Leland didn't realise that his research visits um, meant that he was actually party to and in some degree responsible for their destruction. So let us follow Leland to Glastonbury. This is my rather amateurish photograph of what it remains of the library of Glastonbury Abbey today. At the time, the abbey was really one of the most important religious houses in the country. In size, it was actually bigger even than Canterbury uh, uh, Cathedral or the Cathedral Priory. And it was, of course, a great pilgrimage site with associations to the mythical King Arthur, to Merlin, and to Joseph of Arimathea. So it attracted great wealth, many donations from pious pilgrims, but it also built up an extraordinary library. And it was one of the libraries that Leland was most excited to go and visit. Leland actually gives us a description of his visit to the library, which took place in 1533 or 1534. We don't know exactly when. I had hardly crossed the threshold, he wrote, when the mere sight of the ancient books left me awestruck, stupefied. He literally swooned at the mere sight of these wonderful books. He's really a man after my own heart. 
And he became great friends with the elderly abbot of Glastonbury, Richard Whiting, who was, of course, the last abbot of Glastonbury. He recalled in his notes how generous Whiting was in showing him books and giving him hospitality on his visit. And he even leaves us notes of the books that he looked at. Some of them were ancient chronicles, which were to help prove that there was a viable church in England before the Norman Conquest, indicating to the king, at least, the antiquity of an alternative to papal authority. But he also found there many sources which helped him unearth the history of King Arthur. But he also found a book which he was greatly interested in, and it's this one. Again, we're very fortunate to have it in the Bodleian. It's known as St Dunstan's class book, and it's actually a miscellany, a group of texts bound together, four volumes dating from the 8th to the 10th century, three of which were almost certainly owned or used by St Dunstan, successively Abbot of Glastonbury and later Archbishop of Canterbury, a very important figure in the reform and modernisation of the church in England in the 9th century. And here we can see that there's an image of uh, St Dunstan kneeling at this drawing um, of Christ, arguably the earliest self-portrait in English art. And actually, this book appears in the list of texts that John Leland consulted in his visit in 1533 and 1534. Right at the bottom of this list, it's a little um, small for you to see, but it says, Grammatica Eutychis Liber Olim Sancti Dunstani. So we know that this book, written in the 9th and 10th centuries, was in the library of Glastonbury Abbey in 1249, because there's a surviving medieval catalogue. And then we see it again in 1533 and 1534, with Leland actually consulting the volume. Today, it's in the Bodleian Library, and that is thanks to uh, a group of individuals called antiquaries who were anxious to preserve the contents of those libraries. And um, they then passed them to the great institutions like the Bodleian, founded at the end of the 16th and early 17th century. And it's just as well that they did that. Because what happened after Leland's visit was tragic for the library of Glastonbury Abbey. In 1539, the uh, a group of commissioners, the commissioners for the dissolution of the greater monasteries, um, following an act of parliament in the same year, visited Glastonbury Abbey, and uh, they made trumped-up charges uh, against the abbot, against Abbot Whiting, and uh, that he robbed the Church of Glastonbury of treasure, and he was duly tried, taken up to Glastonbury Tor, after being dragged through the town on a hurdle, And there he was hung, drawn, and quartered. Bits of his body were placed in neighbouring towns, Wells, Taunton, and Glastonbury itself. So not a very happy end to someone who had helped John Leland uh, find his way through the great books of the uh, library of Glastonbury Abbey. But the monastery itself was dismantled, and the books uh, among its properties were handed out as patronage, And we don't know exactly how many there were in 1533 or 1534 when Leland visited, but I would say somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000. A mere 60 volumes are known to survive today. 
From contemporary accounts, we know that many of them were torn up and sold. Some to grocers and soap sellers, said Leland's friend John Bale. Some were sold to bookbinders to strengthen bookbindings, like you can see um, in this picture here. So these volumes cease to have value other than as waste material. And so we're lucky to have a number of the books from the medieval library at Glastonbury that have passed down to us. They were rescued by the antiquaries like uh, Thomas Allen, who um, uh, uh, owned the St. Dunstan's class book and then passed it to the Bodleian's collections. And this process you can see as an act of um, reaction against the destruction of the libraries during the Reformation period. I'd like just briefly to pass to my own institution, to the University Library in Oxford. Originally founded in 1320 by Thomas Cobham, Bishop of Worcester, in a room here in the university church, especially constructed for the purpose. It grew during the Middle Ages through numerous gifts, especially a spectacular one in the middle of the 15th century from Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, one of the most powerful laymen in the country, and someone deeply interested in humanistic learning. That library room um, is still in the Bodleian today, um, a beautiful space, um, still called Duke Humphrey's Library, which first opened as a library to readers in 1488. But this library was attacked in the second phase of the Protestant Reformation, um, when the commissioners of Edward VI visited the university in 1549 and 1550. Again, the books in this collection were mostly sold for scrap materials and only a handful escaped with Catholics fleeing to the continent. And what followed in Oxford was another reaction against the, whole, the wholesale and ideologically driven destruction of knowledge. Sir Thomas Bodley, from a, a staunchly Protestant family, an Oxford graduate and someone who had considerable private wealth, and who was well-connected in the court of Elizabeth I, came along in the 1590s and set about re-establishing the library. He refounded it with certain special features. The statutes of the library placed preservation absolutely at the heart of the library's mission. And here you can see one of the lead-lined cupboards that were um, built at the time to house some of the most precious books. But also access making knowledge available to what Sir Thomas called the whole republic of the learned was key. The library was one of the few open to scholars from outside the university and, uh, and the Bodleian published a catalogue of its holdings as early as 1605 to, a, um, to make its contents available, the knowledge about them available outside of Oxford itself. Bodley, moreover, directed all of his own funding, his private wealth, to endow the library to provide for officers, stipends, augmentation of books, and other pertinent occasions. He wanted his institution to endure and not to suffer, as he had seen the fate of so many libraries during the Reformation. I'd like us to move forward now into the 19th century to another episode of the destruction of knowledge, the burning of the Library of Congress in 1814. I'd like to introduce you to Sir George Coburn, Rear Admiral Coburn, who led a British expeditionary force to the United States, to its former colonies, 
And this, in this mezzotint, in the background, we see an extraordinary picture of the burning of Washington in 18, August 1814. I'd like to quote to you from another Oxford figure, a Balliol alumnus called George Gleig, who's actually a Scotsman um, serving in the British Army, who was in Washington uh, for these events. And he wrote, I do not recollect to see anything more striking or sublime than the burning of Washington. But he was also rather shamed in retrospect that the troops of which he was one also set fire to a noble library, several printing offices, and all the national archives which were committed to the flames and which might better have been spared, he later admitted. And so the destruction of the library, and here's a view of the Capitol building, which housed the Senate, the House of Representatives, and the library itself. After the fire, it was actually the only, sto it was actually the only stone building in Washington at the time, and housed the only library in the city. The Library of Congress had been founded in 1800, the first librarian appointed a few years later, and the collections had been slowly built up to the point in 1814 that 5,000 or so volumes um, were in its collections and, of course, provided a very useful combustible material for the troops to set fire to. Actually, one of the books in that building survives to this day, um, actually, it wasn't in the collections of the Library of Congress itself, but in the room of the office of the president that was in the Capitol building. And it was taken as a souvenir by one of the British troops. He uh, wrote in it that it was the spoil of the conqueror. And it was given to Admiral Coburn. But there's also an inscription at the bottom which records that it was restored to the Library of Congress by A.S.W. Rosenbach, the great rare book dealer, in 1940. But what happened after the events of August 1814 was another response to destruction and a further indication of that human impulse for preservation and the renewal of knowledge. That response came from Thomas Jefferson, one, of course, one of the founding fathers of the United States, one of the architects of the American Constitution, and a former president who had retired to his estate at Monticello in Virginia. He heard about the fire and wrote an absolutely scorching letter to a newspaper in Washington saying that this was an act of barbarism. And he offered his own library, really the greatest private library in North America at the time, to be purchased by Congress to replace the lost library. After months of political wrangling, Congress eventually agreed to the purchase and Jefferson ended up selling 6,500 volumes from his own collection for the princely sum of $24,000. Quite an enormous sum at the time, but it gave the new Library of Congress a head start with vital books for government to use to help it manage its national affairs. Unfortunately, this library suffered an accidental fire in 1851, and the result was that Congress voted then much bigger funds to rebuild the Library of Congress and make it the great institution that it is today. But the burning of the library remained an important part of the national myth of the United States long into the 19th and 20th centuries. Almost exactly a century on from the destruction of the Library of Congress, in August 1914, there's another noteworthy attack on knowledge which became an international incident in the way that the burning of the Library of Congress really didn't at the time. 
It's the destruction of the library of the Catholic University of Louvain in August 1914. Soon after the start of the First World War, the German army marched into neutral Belgium. They occupied the beautiful ancient city of Louvain, or modern-day Leuven, which many called the Oxford of Flanders because of its combination of attractive architecture and a famous university. In August, the German troops set fire to the historic centre of the city and indeed started it in the university library, which was destroyed. Almost all the collections went up in flames. The University Library dated back as an institution to the 1630s. It was refounded in 1835 and became one of a number of legal deposit libraries for the then new country of Belgium. And the events of August 1914, this destruction of this kind of national institution, triggered an international outrage. Here is a scene of the wreckage of the library. All over the world, the news of the burning was made, was met with outrage and horror. Here's an extract from an Irish newspaper, but this example could have been taken for one of dozens from uh, newspapers from all over the world. And again, the loss of the Library of Alexandria, this kind of mythical destruction that never really took place, is, is evoked. This, this episode has largely been forgotten today, but at the time it was a huge story all over the world. I put the term Louvain into a wonderful device called Google Books Ngram Viewer. I highly recommend it. It's quite a fun thing to do. So if you put Louvain into the Ngram Viewer, you get the number of instances of a particular term in books that Google have digitized um, on any particular date. So here you can see this great spike in the latter part of the, um, uh, you know, the teens of the 20th century, given the number of times that Louvain is, is mentioned in print. One of the interesting things about the story of the library in Louvain is actually the reaction, uh, the, res the results after the great conflagration. An international movement to raise funds and to donate books to give to the library was begun. It became a special clause in the Treaty of Versailles, where Germany was charged with replacing the destroyed books. And it's actually the Americans who take the library's renewal as an, op uh, as an opportunity for projecting soft power in Europe. They commit to raise the funds to rebuild the physical structure of the library, a task that was led by Nicholas Butler, the president of Columbia University. Butler's committee chose an American architectural practice, Warren and Wetmore. And here's an architect's drawing of the rebuilt library, or the library to be rebuilt, modelled on the original library in the vernacular Northern European style, something of a pastiche or facsimile of the, of the destroyed building, but one which Americans pledged to raise money to, to rebuild. But it took the Americans longer to actually raise the funds than they predicted. And in that passage of time, well into the 1920s, post-war diplomacy between Belgium and Germany had begun to see a burying of the hatchet, so to speak. And the axe 
uh, in Louvain in 1914 began to be ignored or downplayed by the Belgians who wanted to get on with their neighbours. The Americans wanted to have a big grand opening ceremony for the rebuilt library and designed a massive plaque saying uh, a phrase um, in Latin, you can just about see it in this cartouche at the bottom, which says, destroyed by the Germans, rebuilt by the Americans. Of course, this wasn't actually quite what the Belgians wanted to uh, focus on. And local Belgians climbed up in the middle of the night and smashed the plaque on the wall of the library of Louvain, the rebuilt library. And this became something of an international incident. And the Americans were deeply annoyed by this. The Belgians were deeply embarrassed. And eventually, this plaque was relocated to a, uh, a war memorial outside of the city. The Louvain Library was incredibly important to Belgium as a national symbol, a place of culture, a place of learning by the young, an institution dedicated to the future. So there was great effort to rebuild the library and to restock it with books, uh, an international effort, and in this country, uh, a man called Henry Guppy, the librarian of the John Rylands Library in Manchester, led uh, a national campaign to send Belgium books. And indeed, this library, the building was, uh, of course, reconstructed, filled with books and reopened, and um, for a little over a decade served as the university library once again. But sadly, in 1940, the library is destroyed a second time, again by German troops. This time, artillery targeted on the library saw it destroyed once more, and it had to be rebuilt a second time after World War II. Uh, and they chose, in fact, to rebuild it in the same similar vernacular style, and you can go and visit it today, um, and it's still a vibrant university library. The Holocaust, I think, is one of the episodes in history where the most destruction of knowledge, uh, most catastrophic destruction of knowledge takes place. Scholars have estimated that around 100 million books from Jewish communities were destroyed in the Holocaust, but there's one particular episode that I think is particularly interesting and actually very moving and highlights the importance of the preservation of knowledge and how individuals and communities have taken this task so seriously that they're willing to risk and sometimes to lose their lives in order to do it. Vilna, or modern-day Vilnius in Lithuania, is at the beginning of the 20th century one of the great centres of Jewish civilization. It's one of the great centres of the Jewish religion, a, uh, a city famous for its learned rabbis like the Vilna Gaon. And it's also uh, a city full of libraries and archives, such as the Strashun Library here, formed by a bibliophilic Jewish businessman at the end of the 19th century and left to the Jewish community in Vilna. On the eve of World War II, it had a busy reading room and a learned librarian. But Vilna also had a great archival institution, a research institute into Yiddish culture, the culture of ordinary, everyday Jewish life in Central and Eastern Europe. It was called YIVO. And YIVO began to collect oral histories, things like musical posters, documents like medical case notes, even the diaries of Theodor Herzl, the one of the founders of Zionism. 
And then, of course, in 1939, Lithuania and the other Baltic states and Poland are divided between Germany and Russia. And then in 1940, 1941, the Germans invade and take Vilna and seize the Jewish collections and begin a process to sort through them. Just behind the Blitzkrieg came an operational group, the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, established by Alfred Rosenberg, the person on the left of your screen, the architect of anti-Semitism in the Nazi party. And this operational group was run by a Nazi librarian, Johannes Puhl, on the right-hand side of the screen, who was tasked with identifying books and documents to be sent back to Frankfurt, to Rosenberg's hideous Institute for the Study of the Jewish Question. And the rest of the materials in those libraries and archives in the city um, were to be sent to local paper mills for destruction. The Nazis forced the Jews of Vilna to live in a ghetto, and they chose a number of former librarians and archivists and other intellectuals among them to have the horrible task at gunpoint of sorting through these great uh, libraries and archives of their own city with their own history and culture, either for being sent to Germany or to be destroyed. The people that I selected for this task became known as the Paper Brigade. Here again, we see the human impulse towards the preservation of knowledge. So what the Paper Brigade did as they were forced to sort through those collections, was to hide items in their own clothing, to hide them in furniture that they persuaded the Germans to allow them to take back into the ghetto, and to find many ways of smuggling those books and documents that they were able to get hold of back into the ghetto at the end of each day. Of course, risking their own lives, because if they'd been caught with them um, secreted about their person, they would surely have been murdered. They did this in the hope that they could hide the documents in the ghetto and then recover them later, or that someone would recover them later. A few of the members of the paper brigade managed to escape Vilna when the Vilna ghetto was liquidated in 1943, uh, in 1944, rather. And they came back after the Russians liberated Vilna and recovered some of the collections, actually tens of thousands of documents that they'd managed to smuggle into the ghetto and hide. The effort to preserve the documentary heritage, the documentary witness of Jewish life, however, was happening not just in Vilna. It happened in other centres in Eastern Europe as well. In the Warsaw Ghetto, an archive was made by an organization called Oineg Shabes, led by an extraordinary man called Erwin Emanuel Ringelblum, who was murdered in the Holocaust, but he had managed to hide and bury documents which he and his fellow members had saved. And they were dug up after the war, they were discovered after the war in the ruins of the Warsaw Ghetto, and they'd been hidden in milk canisters and metal cartons, and they survive, and they're in... Uh, an archive in Poland today. Meanwhile, back in Vilna, um, the materials had been saved by the paper brigade and was um, sent for destruction. Um, 
but some of them had been sent to Frankfurt, to Rosenberg's Institute. And this institute was overrun by American troops in 1945, and they began a process of trying to identify the rightful heirs of all the books and documents they found in this Frankfurt Institute. And some of them found their way to New York, where a branch of the YIVO Institute had been established in 1939. And here in this picture, you can see the staff of YIVO in New York opening the packing cases with books and documents that had come from the sorting process that the paper brigade had been forced to do and had ended up in Frankfurt. So these materials survived. But other materials um, had remained in the ruins of the Vilna ghetto. Like I said, they'd been recovered by the, um, the partisans and the few members of the paper brigade that had escaped. They'd re-entered the city after the Nazis had been pushed out, and they recovered their collections and re-established the institutions. But sadly, tragically, they were sent for destruction again because these um, re-established institutions like YIVO fell foul of the Soviet ideology and they were sent to the uh, paper mills for destruction once again. But this time, it's this man, a Lithuanian librarian called Antonas Ulpis, who saved them from destruction. He went to the paper mills, turned the trucks around and hid them in a branch of the National Library of Lithuania that he was responsible for in a disused church. He even hid the documents in organ pipes. And he kept them secret until 1989, after the fall of communism, um, when uh, he had actually died, but he passed on the secret to a few of his colleagues. And uh, those collections um, are now being in the process of being digitized by the YIVO Institute in New York and the National Library of Lithuania. I'd like to talk very briefly about a more recent attack on knowledge, and again, one that's really in living memory. Last year was the 25th anniversary, of course, of the Srebrenica massacre. The attacks on knowledge in Bosnia and Kosovo are other examples of where a cultural genocide came before a human genocide. The National Library of Bosnia and Herzegovina in Sarajevo was deliberately attacked by the Serb militia besieging the city with incendiary shells. No other buildings were targeted on this day, August the 25th, 1992. The fire brigade and librarians that tried to rescue collections from the burning building were targeted by snipers. If you look at Western newspapers at the time, they don't even mention the story on the front pages. It wasn't just the National Library that was targeted. Provincial archives and land registries were also destroyed by Serbian forces, trying to eliminate any record of Muslim land ownership. A librarian called Andras Riedelmeier, who had just retired, who's just retired from the Fine Art Library in Harvard, collected evidence for UNESCO as to what happened to libraries and archives in Bosnia. He even gave evidence at the International War Crimes Tribunal, Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague for the trial of Slobodan Milosevic and for other war criminals like Reklam Mladic. And part of his testimony was about both the cultural importance of the libraries and archives, but also the lengths that were gone to by the Serbs to destroy the knowledge that they contained. 
I'm going to end by looking a little bit at digital destruction. And of course, at this moment in time, we're going through a profound shift in the way that knowledge is created and stored and access to it is provided. And this is done largely by platforms hosted by big technology companies, what my Oxford colleague Timothy Garten-Ash calls the private superpowers. Well, these companies advertise as free services aren't really free. We contribute our usage data, which is then harvested and mined for targeted commercial purposes. We're seeing an increasing number of incidents of that free storage being terminated as business models are reviewed and people lose access to um, knowledge which they've placed there. Preservation of knowledge is one of the pillars, I would argue, of an open society. But our reliance on the web as a platform for sharing knowledge and even for storing it is very dangerous. We can see this when the Harvard Law Library did a survey a few years ago on the website um, which published the decisions of the Supreme Court in the United States and found that 40% of the links on that website were broken and didn't lead you anywhere. If you regard access to the laws of the land as being of fundamental importance to an open society, you can see that there's a problem with this. In more recent times, we've seen Cambridge Analytica using information that we all cre create every time we search on a search engine or we use social media services like Facebook and we click like on posts and so on. And they it's being used by companies like Cambridge Analytica to influence our um, political agendas by targeting political advertising. One of the problems that we face is that there's no Facebook archive that we can access. That knowledge of what these very powerful companies have been doing in the public sphere is lost to us because it's uh, so instantaneous. But some libraries are trying to address these problems. The National Library of New Zealand, for example, is a project where they're asking New Zealanders to donate the Facebook profiles, uh, to don donate their Facebook profiles in order to gain a picture of how New Zealand society behaved with social media in the 21st century. I'd like to take you just back to these ancient clay tablets from the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia and to Ashurbanipal sort of seizing the knowledge from his enemy uh, libraries. Because what he was doing, if you remember, was trying to get information that helped him predict the future. Well, this is exactly what the big tech companies are up to today. I don't know if any, any of you wear a Fitbit or an Apple watch or any of the wearable devices that monitor your biometric data, your health data. Well, what this does, if you match, mash it up with, for example, your search history on Google or one of the other search engines is that it helps the tech companies predict your future health. Now, this might be important, for example, to you to help you monitor your own health, but it might also be of great interest to um, your health insurer. Um, but you might not be so keen on them having access to that information. I think I'm, what I'm trying to say is how important this kind of social knowledge is for us and we ought to be controlling it rather than the big technology companies. And we've also seen um, earlier this year with the 
um, insurgent storming of the Capitol building in the United States, um, where tragically five people lost their lives back in January this year, um, that they used um, uh, an encrypted messaging app called Parler to communicate and organize themselves. And this was quickly taken off the app stores and off the web. Um, but of course, it contained a lot of valuable information of how those groups were organizing themselves. But fortunately, um, an institution in the United States called the Internet Archive captured that website, harvested that website, and kept uh, a kind of publicly available record of it. And of course, President Trump was the first president to use social media to control his political communications and did so incredibly successfully. But he also had a habit of deleting many messages shortly after sending them. Not a high percentage, but still of great significance. But there were activist archivist groups like Factbase, this is a snapshot from a screenshot from their website that preserved the records of every Twitter post, including the ones he deleted. And the use of self-deleting messaging systems and encrypted messaging systems is now something in this country I'm very concerned about. Um, and I wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times about the, the use that's made of those systems by government ministers and special advisors and civil servants, which I feel should be brought under the 1958 Public Records Act. Why should we be concerned about these modern attacks on knowledge? Well, I'd like to end with this quote by George Orwell um, from his classic 1984, which I think speaks actually so powerfully to us in our current predicament. The past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, the lie became truth. Thank you for listening. Okay, so the first question is, although the digital world gives much more access to texts, is there a threat of a destruction of real libraries as a consequence? Oh, that's a, a question I often get asked, actually. I think if I had a pound for every time I've been asked, well, <laughs> aren't libraries necessary? Libraries aren't necessary anymore, are they? If I had a pound for every time I'd asked that, I'd be able to endow the Bodleian, I think. <laughs> Um, no, not, not, not at all, because it's the, the physical library is not just a place where the analogue collections of society are kept and preserved, um, but they're places where the staff, the skilled experts in preservation, in metadata, in particular knowledge domains work, and they often are working on preserving online information, that sort of web archiving, the archiving of social media, all these things that I was talking about at the end of my talk. But they're also places of study of where communities can come together. And we've certainly seen in the pandemic when access to physical library spaces has been restricted very heavily, at times completely, that the demand for, to get back into those libraries has been incredible. And certainly since reopening that we were able to do, we've seen a huge return to the physical space, being able to study companionably uh, and to, you know, as the world that we're in is so, you can so easily be distracted by um, media of all kinds, actually to find somewhere where you can quietly think, read and write is a very rare commodity these days. Thank you. 
Um, and then a more specific question about one of the elements of your lecture. How did the intellectual community survive in Germany after the destruction of books through the Nazi regime? Well, um, most of the Jewish community, because that's particularly where the attacks that I focused on were, um, were targeted, of course, were either murdered or they fled. And it's quite interesting that after some of the collections that did survive, like at Rosenberg's Frankfurt Institute that were discovered in, uh, by the Americans in 1945, and there was this process to try to return them to their, their heirs, if you like, that there, were, there became then, then a very difficult process. So um, there was an example of an archive from the Jewish community in Augsburg. Now, there were almost no Jews left in Augsburg. They were all murdered, except a handful who had been in camps at the end of the war and returned there. Now, there were other Jews who had family connections to Augsburg, who at this time were in America or in Palestine, who argued, well, we're the heirs of the Augsburg Jews. We should have those archives, and they should be brought into the, what became the National Library of Israel, for example, or to move to some of the great American libraries of Jewish communities. Um, but actually, the small, the handful of Jews who were left in Germany said, no, that's wrong. They should come back to us in Augsburg so that we can show that we've endured, we've survived, and that we want to continue the longevity of our community here. And so, um, you know, there began a series you know, that lasted decades of contesting, you know, where these collections should, should end up. So it, and it still remains, you know, in other parts of the world, this issue of, you know, who, sh who is the rightful um, inheritor, if you like, of displaced or, di you know, displaced or migrated collections should be a very interesting problem. Knowledge isn't the same thing as truth. So, for example, the earth used to be flat. The earth used to be the center of our solar system. I'd like you to comment on that because it seems that uh, there are a variety of truths around today. Yes, I, I, and I think that's what libraries and archives should be doing, are preserving truths and falsehoods. They should be are collecting both because we need to know what people were saying even if it's lies and perhaps especially if it's lies so that those individuals, so that the historical record can um, be preserved so that future generations can understand where the source of those untruths came from or in our own time, so that the people who make those statements that are untrue can be held to account. So I wanted to delve a little bit more into the digital end of the conversation. And I think as so much of our information loses the physical materiality um, and that dissipates, um, there becomes more of a need, as you've said, to find out, find ways to preserve it and keep it real. On the other hand, I, I think there's been an accompanying explosion in just the amount of content, of artifacts of communication, um, of ephemera that exist on the internet digitally today. Um, and I'd love for you to speak a little bit about how the challenges of preserving, interpreting, analyzing, and sort of 
drawing conclusions about the way people lived in the future will change um, as this sort of transition, both in, in form and in quantity of information occurs. Thank you. That's a very great question, but a very important one. And it's one which I think um, part of my book is about how libraries and archives need to devote more resources to that very task. So we're already doing a number of these issues, like, for example, web archiving. So the UK legal deposit libraries and the together with Trinity College in Dublin, archive the whole of the UK web domain every year. And we do deep dives on kind of special collections around particular issues. And we need to do much more of that. That needs to happen across the globe so that we can preserve a record of the web, like the Internet Archive, which is a relatively small, private, not-for-profit institution. We also need to be doing... Um, archiving of, um, you know, organisations all over the world need to be paying attention to their born digital data. And I'll give you an, ex an example, which is the UK Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. So it's quite important, I think, for society to know where nuclear waste is stored or buried. And when it was put there, how much of it there is what it's stored in, what this made, you know, all of this information, and there's vast amounts of it that the UK Nuclear Decommissioning Authority have to control. But it's important that that information doesn't survive for 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. It needs to survive for a very, very long period of time. So that issue, what we call digital preservation, is absolutely crucial for society, I think, and so we need to be educating more of society about the need to do that. And we need to be entrusting the institutions who are good at preserving knowledge, libraries and archives, with more of that and resourcing them appropriately, giving them enough staff and skills and also the legal frameworks in which they can do it. And um, one of the other issues that I think is really important, it goes back to my comments about Facebook and social media and about the com commercial advertising um, is that the ad tech industry, um, the, the, the industry that profiles data, that trades that data in order to target commercial advertising every time that you, you know, go onto the new a newspaper website and you get adverts for BMWs because you've just been looking at the BMW website. Um, I drive a Volvo, by the way. Um, I think that data is something that we should be taking and of course it's in vast quantities, it's created constantly but perhaps sampling it and that's what archives are good at is sampling it so that we get some picture of what our contemporary society is like and that we have a record of it and that we can see how it changes over time so sorry huge question, really important one so just a few, few ways of answering it I'm also the president of a wonderful group called the Digital Preservation Coalition, by the way, which is very much focused on these issues. I'm very sorry. I know there are a few other questions, um, but I'm afraid we're going to have to draw it to a halt. If you wanted to sneak up at the end, the professor might take a couple of questions from you. Um, but thank you, Richard, very much for a really interesting lecture and for addressing the audience's questions. And thank you to our audience for your kind attendance. <laughs>